Well, good morning, everyone. I'm just setting this here for later. We do have a couple of baptisms, which is an exciting time. And uh, baptism, uh, as you know, um, is not a... Oh, I, I should mention, sorry. The kids are obviously welcome to stay up. That's why we didn't dismiss them. But if the toddlers and the kindergartners are kind of wiggly and you want your toddlers and kindergartens to go to their classes, the teachers are there. So if the younger kids want to go, they can be dismissed. And if you want to keep the older kids here for the baptism, uh, then they're certainly welcome as well. Um, so yeah, so we have this amazing opportunity to baptize. And we have Rosie Randall and Virginia Wood who are going to be baptized this morning. And right now they're just calming their nerves as they're getting ready to come up here and give their testimony. And I know they're super excited about it. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen a baptism or don't understand baptism, just so you uh, understand it a little bit, uh, as Peter says uh, in 1 Peter 3.19, that baptism is not a washing of dirt from our body. In other words, it's not a, a physical ritual that somehow saves us or makes us more righteous, but it is a declaration of a clear conscience before God, which essentially means that these women have, uh, are professing their faith, that they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and they know that he is their, he is their savior, and, uh, and they're going to tell their story, their personal story of how they got there. And, uh, and then this baptism now is an ordinance. It is a command that was given by our Lord Jesus that we are to go to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we follow that command and we baptize one another to testify and to make known uh, the reality of what's taken place. And of course, the symbolism is, is that we go down into the waters of baptism the same way that Jesus went into the tomb. We go down into death and we're resurrected into new life. And so that's the symbolism uh, that immersion baptism has for us. And uh, so yeah, so now we'll have Rosie come up first. And she's all ready with her stuff. And I'll have her stand right here so that everybody sees you here and online. Yes, and I will give you this. And I can hold it or you can hold it. It's up to you. You should hold it. Yeah, I should hold I, it. Because yeah. I got, got I used two hands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I hope this is okay, but um, people sign um, guest books at weddings and yearbooks when they graduate. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote my testimony in this book, and there's tons of space in the back. So I'm going to put this uh, on the divider at the back if anybody wants to sign it or put any words in there. I love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Such a rosy um, thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I grew up with no religious or spiritual guidance. My father describes himself as atheist and my mother as agnostic. My mom later told me that when the family emigrated to Canada from Germany in the late 1950s, uh, like many Germans, they were loosely associated with Lutheranism. And although mom never remembers them going to church, she had been christened in Leipzig when she was three years old, sorry, three months old. Um, My dad's side was British a few generations back, and I think we're associated with the Church of England. But for some reason, my grandma, Rose, who I'm named after, decided to become a Jehovah's Witness, as did two of my dad's brothers. This caused many arguments, and I think is the main reason my dad is atheist. But in this regard, I'm so grateful to my parents for not pushing any beliefs on me, not even atheism, because at least I had nothing to unlearn. I took a lot of comfort in nature, still do. There is truth in nature's beauty. Even the most average fern or dragonfly is so much more effortlessly perfect than all the gadgets we try to cobble together, idols we hope won't topple over. I couldn't avoid the idea that there is more than what we see, an intelligent creator, behind the beauty of nature. It's unnecessarily over-the-top beautiful. Why? And why are we uniquely able to perceive that beauty? I grew up in an apartment building in Scarborough, but came alive every summer at my grandparents' place an hour north of Huntsville. I knew from an early age that I wanted to live in the country to be surrounded by God's creation rather than man's invention. When I was a little girl, I had a vivid dream about Jesus, which I wrote down. I always liked Jesus as a wise and kind archetype, but the crucifixion horrified and confused me, and I resisted. I spent my 20s and 30s searching. Alone, I went to a few different churches, but never got into it, and explored Taoism, Buddhism, and New Age philosophies, but I never really felt passionate about any of them. Over the years, I was even approached by people trying to introduce the gospel to me, and though I I appreciated their prayers and good intentions, none of it landed on my heart. Something on my bucket list was to see where my family had come from, so in 2017, I took a a solo trip to Germany. 
It was a hard trip. I ended up sleeping in my rented car one cold October night because I didn't feel safe in the Airbnb I had arranged. My schedule was tight, a different Airbnb every night, uh, more driving than I expected, and lots of traffic jams. But I booked two days in Leipzig, the city where my mom had been christened and where my Oma, my grandmother, grew up. I was drawn to the St. Thomas Church, where my Oma always displayed, which my Oma always displayed a picture of, a picture I now have on my wall. As I sat in the beautiful old church for hours, my eyes kept being drawn up to the statue of Christ on the cross. And there's a picture of that in this book, if you want to see it close up. <laughs> um, um, and I, felt, I physically felt a warm, heavy blanket of peace settle on me, like I could finally rest. I still didn't fully understand the crucifixion, but my heart stopped resisting, and I just saw Christ as my beloved. I wanted to take him down from there, comfort him, and tend to his wounds. I basked for hours in that warmth, peace, wonder, and love, yet also yearning in anguish for what he had gone through. I felt an ache in my belly. When I got back to my room, I had started bleeding unexpectedly. I felt like I was bleeding in empathy with Christ. I took a picture of that crucifix and keep it by my bed to this day as a reminder of that special time in his presence and the mysterious power of my physical reaction. I went back to my Airbnb room, fell asleep for a few hours, then returned to the church to watch a choir and concert. As I waited in line to go in, a double rainbow appeared and my eyes filled with tears of wonder and gratitude. There's a picture of that in the back. <laughs> um, uh, inside the church, there was a large wooden cross upon which people could pin their prayers. The only prayer I could think of was thank you. Even after all that, it would still be five years before I would get it. During that time, the sum summer of 2019, I had a job opportunity that enabled me to move up to the Halliburton Minden area. Then COVID hit, and in a strange and roundabout way, that also brought me closer to God. It wasn't the illness itself that concerned me, but the cultural response. Things weren't adding up. There was a lot of confusion. I heard of, a, of small businesses and churches being closed, even pastors going to prison for holding church services during lockdowns, while crowded Costco's and Walmarts remained open. These felt like end times. I was looking for answers, felt drawn to the Bible, felt like it was a book I should read before the end, and for some reason I really wanted to learn more about Jesus. I connected with a few people of faith. Um, a very devout man gave me my first Bible in June 2021, and I started reading the New Testament. In July 2021, I met my boyfriend Andy. Our draw to each other was surreal. The first time he came to my place, I was a little worried about what he would think of that photo of Jesus I had by my bed. But then I learned he'd been raised in a, str a strong Christian family himself. Um, and though, like me, he had explored other philosophies, he still considered himself a follower of Christ. We had the spiritual and intellectual connection I'd been missing in my previous relationships. And in our conversations, he was able to explain Christianity to me more logically and gently than anyone I'd ever met before. He put to rest my objections about, uh, about it being apparently unbalanced and patriarchal. I'm also a musician, and because I could no longer play live due to COVID restrictions, I started performing at local freedom rallies where I met Val Jarvis. She was such a strong supporter of my music that when she invited me to, uh, to come to Lakeside in May 2022, I agreed, just to return the favor, but I didn't expect much. I, I invited Andy to come with me, and of course, we were pretty much blown back in our seats by Pastor Paul's sermons. He was able to explain the Bible in a way my logical mind couldn't pick apart, yet that I simultaneously found emotionally moving and relevant, and also practical and applicable to everyday life. While I believed from emotional and experiential perspectives, I needed to understand Christianity intellectually to put the final pieces together. Mainly through the work of Lee Strobel and by learning about the amazing Shroud of Turin, I discovered there is a landslide of historical, forensic, archaeological, and scientific evidence for the events of the Bible, especially that most important miracle, the resurrection. I've learned that anyone who doesn't believe simply hasn't done their research. It, it wasn't a singular aha moment, but, for, but sometime during the late summer, early fall of 2022, um, as Andy and I worked through the New Testament together, I gradually realized that the word was changing me, and I asked Christ to be in my life. I started seeing things differently and came to understand the crucifixion, why it was necessary, what it accomplished, and that it was the ultimate act of love. After what Christ did for me on that cross, the least that I can do is show up for him. Not that showing up at Lakeside every Sunday is any kind of sacrifice. We look forward to it all week, every week, and the church family was immediately warm and welcoming, which helped quell my own feelings of being an imposter. 
Andy and I read scripture every day. We're now making our way through the Old Testament. We pray every day, and our faith and personal relationships with God just keep getting deeper and closer. While there is great comfort in that, what I've tried to explain to my non-believing family who has the, well, I'm glad you're happy view that religion is just another tool for personal comfort, is that accepting Christ isn't always a jolly path. I'm experiencing a new level of personal accountability like never before. The Bible is a clear guide as to what's right and wrong, and I can no longer feel right about many of my previous activities, priorities, and attitudes. Becoming Christian has changed every part of my life. This was probably the the hardest part of all. It was so much more comfortable to think of blipping out of existence after I die than having to answer for my life and face an eternal existence. It's scary to be at the mercy of the God of the universe. I almost miss my blissful ignorance, but now that I know, I can't unknow. Who is Jesus to me? He's my beloved. Looking back, I see he's always been there, my lifelong friend who never gave up on me, patiently waiting for me to answer the door where he's been knocking for decades. He's timeless and cosmic. He's my safety and my savior who paid the deepest price for all my sins, and that's not a short list, past and future. I'm so humbled he chose me and never gave up on me, and I want to honor him as best as I can as I await his return or my return to him. So today I make it official. Today I die to my old name, Rosie or Roe, and claim the legal name I've resisted all my life, Rose. For if people ask where did she go, hopefully others will answer she rose with Christ. (laughs) Today I die to my old self and surrender to Christ. Jesus, my music, my life are for you. Yeah, that's how we do that. (laughs) Oh, actually, before you get in, there might be some people who want to pray for you and to um, maybe share a verse. Actually, I should have this. This should be going around so that we get this captured. Yeah. So whoever wants to pray or share a Bible verse. Rosie is so proud of you today. So excited for your whole family. Hi, Mary. Um... Uh, Psalm 96 came to me, of course. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. And also, I just happened to come across a little book that was gifted to an old friend of mine in 19... December 1950, (laughs) I thought, well, there's probably something in here for Rosie because I know she has a Bible that had a um, significant date. And this is a prayer for a birthday. And this is your birthday as a new believer, so. um, It is my birthday, Lord Jesus, my Savior, and I thank thee for giving me the wonderful gift of life. I pray thee that I may use my life rightly, that I may try to grow braver, kinder, wiser, and truer year by year. I thank thee for all the joys of the past year and pray thee, bless me through the coming one. Help me to conquer my faults and live more um, more to thy glory. Grant me thy grace to help all those around me and to try to make them happy. Be with me step by step all through this year and keep me safe unto the end. For thy sake, amen. Boy, everybody's so good on this microphone. Um, I want to read uh, from John 6, um, verse 57 to 69. As a living God sent me, and I live because of the Father. Uh, so So whosoever believes, sorry, so whosoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from the heavens. Not like the bread of the fathers, that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself 
that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who don't believe. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In the year and a half that, that we've known each other, um, I've been so moved and inspired watching you grow in your relationship with Jesus. You've helped me tremendously in my own walk, and I'm so grateful. I am so blessed to be here to witness you taking this next step in your relationship with Jesus. Wow, Rosie. First of all, I want to thank you for the time that you're able to be in our small group and that you just shine so strong and so bright there. So from um, Romans 3, verses uh, 21 to 24. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Make it short. <laughs> Rose, I just wanted to just praise God for, uh, for the faith that, you've, that he's allowed you to receive in, in Jesus. And, uh, and it really uh, uh, just makes me overjoyed just to be able to know you for this short time. And uh, like, uh, as was said, you were in our small group for, for a while. And, and uh, you really made an impact on all of us. And I just want to thank God for that and just pray that God will just continue to lead you and help you to grow, and uh, that you may just be a light that shines in this world. Uh, I can see that already. So thank you very much. Hi, Rose. This one verse from Ephesians 3.20. God is able to accomplish infinitely more than we could ever dare to ask or hope, and this is through your trust in Jesus. Let's get you in here. Yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. Oh. All right. I'm not totally cutting you off. Does anybody have one last verse or prayer for Rosie before we do this? All right. So, Rose. Can I call you Rose then? (laughs) You have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of your sins and are following him for the rest of your life, trusting him for your hope of salvation and resurrection. All right then, as your pastor and as your friend then, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yep, that's fine. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost.
I'll hold your hand. Victor, uh, Virginia. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yeah. Come on up. Would you like me to hold this? You can hold it. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um. One of the biggest struggles in my life has been coping with loss. When I was five, I lost my father in a devastating work accident. I lost my grandparents that I shared a close bond with. I lost my stepfather, who was an amazing and caring man. My baby brother committed suicide five years ago on the same date that my father had died on 12 years earlier. I lost my cousin, who was more like a sister, to cancer in 2020. And that same year, I lost my ex-husband and father to my son. But most recently, five months ago, I lost the love of my life, my fiancé, Lucas. Now, I love my father, both biological and step. And I love my brother, my cousin, the father of my child, and my grandparents. But losing Lucas broke me. I couldn't function. All I wanted to do was sleep. I wanted to be with him. I wanted to die, too. It's the first time that I honestly entertain the thought of suicide. I have a son who I love so much, and I would never intentionally leave him. But I just wanted the pain of losing Lucas to end. I did not grow up in a religious household. I had family that took me and my siblings to Sunday school, sometimes, and I was lucky enough to meet Mrs. Simpson, who I attended youth group and church events with on occasion. But I never allowed myself to truly develop a relationship with God. There was always a disconnect between feeling that something was missing in my life and reaching out to God. With so much loss comes feelings of anxiety, sadness, and hopelessness. I remember sitting in my living room a few weeks after Lucas died, feeling heartbroken and defeated. And my thoughts went to Jesus. I asked him, why? Why did this happen? Why didn't you just take me too? With each day that came, I found myself thinking of Jesus more and more. I bought a Bible, and I started to slowly read it. I found myself researching the scriptures for for information that I didn't understand, and I also reached out to others who had a strong faith with questions. The day that God showed me he was there, or should I say the day I realized he was there for me, I was crying, sobbing so hard that I could barely breathe. I was drowning in my grief, and I called out to Jesus. I closed my eyes, and I called him over and over, begging for strength, and it happened. I felt a calmness come over me that I'm not really sure I ever felt before in my life. I felt like I could breathe again. I was so grateful that I smiled and thanked him over and over for relieving me of the pain that was consuming me in that moment. I picked up my Bible and read more, and so it became that every time I was feeling overwhelmed in my grief, I would read it, and I would feel better. I would think of God and feel hopeful. This was huge. I learn, as the more I learn about Jesus, about his love, the more I'm starting to feel joy. Not only because I know that there's absolutely no doubt that I will see Lucas again, but because one day I'm going to get to be with Jesus. I still struggle. Each, day, each loss I've experienced is still with me, and the pain is still there, but I talk it through with him. Jesus knows me better than anyone, and he loves me. And the greatest thing is that I can feel that love. Matthew fourteen thirty to 31. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. <laughs> Immediately, Jesus reached out, reached out and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Jesus reached out his hand and saved me. That wind is my grief. He is my strength and my savior. I am forever grateful and will be forever faithful to him. Amazing testimonies, amazing testimonies. Is there anyone here that has a Bible verse or a prayer or a word of encouragement for Virginia? Oh, 
Um, I didn't know Lucas or you, Virginia, until just recently, but um, Andrew Hodson knew um, Lucas really well and sends his love because uh, he was going to try to make it here today. I don't think he's here, but I wanted to pass that on to you that uh, he's thinking of you. And uh, I'd heard of the the tragedy um, from Lucas's next-door neighbor, Peg Truman, who's a friend of mine, who also uh, sends her love. And this is from Isaiah, the good news of salvation. Um, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Hello, Virginia. Um, so we've, I've known you for quite a while. I was thinking about it, and it was back in the days of uh, Video City when we worked together with Doug Hardy. So that's kind of date myself because that was back in the VHS days. Um, I just wanted to say that I'm really proud of you uh, for your just your testimony, being open and honest and vulnerable. And the verse I wanted to share with you is one that's been um, very important in my life because your testimony brings up a lot of things in my past as well. And it is uh, Psalm 91. And for me, starting in verse 1, it just reminded me of 911. So when we struggle in life, we call 911 physically, but spiritually, we call we go to Psalm 911, and it says, "Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty." I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. And then he responds at the end of that and says, Because she loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue her. I will protect her, for she acknowledges my name. She will call on me, and I will answer her. I will be with her in times of trouble. I will deliver her and honor her. With long life, I will satisfy her and show her my salvation. Virginia, um, I guess we go back to Video City as well. So, um, Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Virginia, you've been through a lot, and I praise God for where he's brought you to. And the verse I have is, is Philippians 1, 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Did you want to I just want to say I love you, Virginia. So I have a, a couple of verses. Your story was, was, it's heartfelt, it's painful, and I'm so sorry you had to go through what you went through. In Psalm 9, verse 11 and 12, it says, 
Sing praises to the Lord who reigns in Jerusalem. Tell the world about his unforgettable deeds. For he who avenges murder cares for the helpless, and he does not ignore the cries of those who suffer. And Isaiah 43, verse 2 says, When you walk through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Virginia, this is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with your whole heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths. Is that on? Lord, we just thank you for this day. Virginia's been a part of my life for ever since we came up here 30 years ago when she was part of our youth group. And Lord, she's gone through many things. But praise you, Lord, it doesn't bother you when we cry out why. Because you care. And you care about Virginia and her son, Lord. And Lord, you are going to bless her and her future is ahead of her. And you have mighty things for her to do in your precious name. And we thank you for today. Thank you, Jesus. You ready to get in here? Water is wet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So... Virginia, (laughs) you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and repented of your sin and are going to follow him the rest of your life. (laughs) Of course, we all do it to the best of our ability. Then as your pastor and your friend, then I, if you put your hands up, it's easier for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then as your pastor and your friend, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right. Wow. Two very different testimonies, but both so powerful and so amazing. Yes. Now, I have purposefully written this to be done in 15 minutes. (laughs) Oh, both of those testimonies, just to segue into our Advent theme of how Christ meets us in our poverty. Maybe somebody has a towel. I don't know. That's fine. I can just... Nobody online knows. Um, Christ meets us in our poverty. You heard in those testimonies the poverty that each recognized they were experiencing, whether it was a poverty of peace, a poverty of joy, a poverty of knowledge, a poverty of, of hope, um, and how Christ met that poverty. Um, and in meeting that poverty, drew them into the riches of a relationship and a restored and renewed and redeemed relationship with God. And that's what we looked at last week. And so if you missed last week, you really have to go back and listen to last week because it sets the whole stage for this final 10 minutes. Uh, And yes, the rest of the children are dismissed, sorry, uh, if they want to go down and get the last part of their lesson. Um, Last week really sets the stage for this sort of application and conclusion, and that's what this week is about, really, is what is the application and conclusion of the reality that Christ has met us in our poverty by becoming poverty himself, and then how are we to respond to that? And we remember, just to fill you in a little bit, um, the poverty of our experience 
can take hundreds of different forms. It could be a poverty of, of peace. It could be a poverty of joy. It could be a poverty of acceptance or identity. Any of those things are the poverties that we experience. But we know that God's redeeming plan is to meet that poverty. Jesus, though he was rich, for our sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And so our God is a God who meets us in our poverty, who literally comes into our presence through Jesus Christ, which we celebrate now at Christmas, his advent, of entering into our disorder, entering into our brokenness, entering into these poverties, and meeting us in that poverty to draw us out. Uh, You guys, we just heard it, but you guys know uh, the first line of the 23rd Psalm, so I know you can say it with me. What's the first line of the 21st Psalm? 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because Jesus is our shepherd, we shall not suffer lack, I think the King James says. We shall not suffer lack. Um, And so we are not to be in poverty because the Lord cares for his people. They're not impoverished. And so, as I say, if you're struggling with these poverties of experience, uh, the sermon is online, go back and look at that. But what I want to do today is just, it's, it's almost a bit of an advertisement, it's a bit of a, a teaser uh, for a seminar that's coming up the first Saturday of February. Um, because one of the realities of this poverty that we experience is we don't feel qualified to address the poverty of others. But that's exactly what we must do. Because God is a God who meets us in our poverty, because we are image bearers of Jesus who came into the presence of our poverty, we as image bearers of Jesus and disciples of Jesus must be a kind of people that enter into the poverty of others. We must be the kind of people that press in to the want and the need of others and be able to meet that need with the riches of Jesus Christ and the gospel that we carry. The problem is our own poverty quite often makes us feel ill-equipped to do that. And so, as I say, in like 10 minutes, this is just basically going straight to application in terms of how we can equip ourselves in order to meet the poverty of others, how it is a duty to us as disciples to be equipped to meet the poverty of others. And as I say, I want to do a seminar on this uh, in the first Saturday of of February. I think it's the 4th. And and so we're going to have a whole seminar on just a little bit of a taste of what I'm going to give you right now. But as image bearers of Jesus, as recipients of his spirit, and, and collectively as, as the church being his body on earth, and for us in Halliburton, we must corporately and personally meet poverty as Jesus did. We have to be equipped to apply the poverty we encounter, and we need to make that as much our mission as Jesus did. And we need to do that three ways, or I'm going to talk about how three ways we do that. We need to do that materially and spiritually, we need to do it corporately and personally, and we need to do it by countering the curse of the world, the sins of others, and our own sin. So first of all, materially and spiritually, very simply, we must both meet the needs of people materially and also meet their spiritual poverty. Remember the verse uh, in Exodus that I read in Exodus chapter 6, 9, and 10. Moses was explaining the gospel uh, of the Old Testament, the covenant promise that God had made to the people. He wanted them to receive the spiritual riches of God. He was proclaiming to them how they were rich in God's relationship to them. But you remember the final line was that they could not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Their material impoverishment was preventing a spiritual wealth. And so we cannot simply tell people to read their Bible and pray when they need food and shelter and freedom. James 2, 15 and 16 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? It's a rhetorical question. It's of no good at all. And James goes on to say that if that's your posture towards need when you encounter it, then your faith is dead in the very next verse. But we also must bring along with our mercy to meet the material needs of people the gospel. Because without the gospel, all the material help in the world will not ultimately make anybody rich. And so we see in Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so the first principle is very simply that as a church, as a people, as disciples, we have to meet people's material poverty 
and we also have to meet their spiritual poverty. God has made us embodied souls. We are physical and spiritual, and God cares for our well-being, both materially and spiritually. And both of them are manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, who came physically to meet the needs of the whole person with a whole gospel, not just half a gospel. The other thing is, not just materially and spiritually, but we must do this corporately and personally. We do this poverty uh, approach, we do this poverty meeting as a community, and we also do it personally. And that's pretty self-explanatory, but perhaps needs to be said. Yes, the church has a benevolent fund. Yes, we alleviate the needs of the people in our church and community as often and as wisely as we can. We offer counseling. We offer relational support. We offer assistance with illness and addiction. As a corporate body, we strive to meet the poverty of those we encounter, and we strive to meet the poverty they encounter spiritually and relationally and emotionally as well. And you can support those ministries financially. We can only do it because you support our mercy ministries financially. So do be involved in that. But each individual Christian must also recognize the need to identify the poverty of others and enter into it personally themselves, to be prepared and equipped to enter into it, to draw near to those who are in want, just as Jesus did and just as he did for you. So you have a friend who is struggling with a poverty of opportunity. Draw near to that and provide. You have a coworker suffering a poverty of peace or joy. You can meet their poverty. You have a family member in a poverty of grace or forgiveness. Jesus has given you the riches to draw near and engage with them in alleviating that poverty. And you see, this is a lens through which we understand biblically what's taking place at the water cooler conversation, what's taking place biblically when you're having a coffee with a friend in a broken marriage, over dinner while we're talking to people who are expressing to us the poverty of their situation and looking for hope that we have. This is the biblical lens in which we understand that all of us are experiencing poverty. And those around us in our family, in our work, in our community are coming to us and they're saying, what can you do to help me? People's complaints are complaints of their poverty. Again, whether it's relational, whether it is physical, whether it is financial, whether it is to do with grace or mercy or opportunity or compassion, whatever their poverty, their experience, they're bringing that to you. And to be image bearers of Christ is to enter into that and to be equipped and prepared to deal with that. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you, you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Be just basically saying, be, be aware, have your radar on, because people are going to come and they're going to share with you, and you're going to have an opportunity to share the hope that you have. So be prepared for that. But as I started out saying, we often feel ill-equipped for that. We often feel like, I don't know how to, you know, how does the gospel apply to a broken marriage? How does the gospel apply to somebody looking for a job? How does the gospel, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ apply to someone who's lost family members and loved ones? How does the gospel apply to cancer? How does the gospel apply to everything in life? And because of our own poverty, we often don't feel equipped. So I'm just going to give you a taste of what is coming up. The first place to start as you consider how the gospel and how Jesus Christ encounters poverty is understanding how poverty comes to us in sin. And we'll expand on this in a whole seminar, three and a half hours on Saturday, so that you can feel equipped to approach people in their poverty biblically and gospel-centered. Whenever we encounter the poverty of others, the simplest way to start is understanding that sin has impoverished us in three main ways. We are impoverished both physically and spiritually by the curse of the world that resulted from the fall. There's also the sins of others towards us and our own sin. So first of all, you may be talking to somebody and they're dealing with the curse of the world, the fact that we fell into sin and the world has been cursed as a a response to our sin. The world we inhabit is not the world God intended. It's stricken by thorns and weeds like we talked about last week, droughts and floods and earthquakes and hurricanes. It contains Alzheimer's and allergies and botulism and bipolar disorder and cancer and COVID-19. And we could go right through the whole alphabet a few times if we wanted to. Because the world is cursed, we can at times, and all of us at any given time, experience and suffer a poverty of health, a poverty of well-being, finances, security, shelter, poverty of even just clean drinking water, as our water ambassador friends know very well, in which they strive to alleviate. 
We need to be able to recognize when the curse of the world is the cause of our poverty and the cause of other people's poverty and know how God and the gospel are meant to counter and to address that poverty. So whatever curse of the world, whatever circumstances, whatever seemingly random things have happened to people that are sitting across the table from you as they're explaining what they're experiencing, know that God is well aware of the curse of the world and he has come to redeem the world and to give us the gospel and give us Jesus Christ in order to live in this world, not in poverty, but in riches. We need to turn from our poverty to meet Jesus in his riches. And we'll go into more detail. As I said, this is just a a teaser. The second way the sin affects us is the sins of others. Other people sin against us. Do you know that? Have you ever been sinned against? Has that ever happened to you? You know, people do sin against us. Ever experienced it? I mean, other people get angry at us. They insult us. They abuse us. They harm us. They manipulate us. They take things from us. They degrade us. There are a host of ways that the sins of other people impoverish us. And we meet people in their poverty, and we meet our own poverty. We need to recognize how the sins of others may be the source of that poverty. And in so doing, learn how Jesus and the gospel meet that specific kind of poverty and provide what we need and provide what others cannot supply in order to counter and to redeem the effects of the sins of others on our lives. That's the second way that we can be listening and hearing to think biblically about the poverty that people are experiencing But there's a third way. There's our own sin, or their own sin, if we're counseling them. We are really good at recognizing how we are impoverished by the world and by the sin of others. In fact, if if you were to ask me just from my experience in my counseling office at the church, um, that is the only way people suffer poverty. It's the world's fault, and it's other people's fault. We're great at recognizing that. We can talk about that all day long. When you go out for a coffee with one of your friends or coworkers, they will mainly talk about how the world and others are causing them poverty. We've got that well understood. What we don't normally press into, and we need to understand and ask anyone while they're struggling, is whether it might be their own sin. The truth is, a lot of our poverty comes from our own sin. We create our poverties of relationship. We create our poverties of opportunity. We put ourselves in a poverty of peace and of satisfaction and of joy because of unwise, selfish, sinful decisions that we make apart from the wisdom and the will of God. And we don't usually like to hear that, but if we are going to ever gain the wealth of Christ and the gospel at some point, we have to deal with the reality of self-inflicted poverty through our own sin. And so if you're going to be a wise counselor, a wise discipler of a friend, of a fellow Christian who is speaking biblically into their life, you do have to understand how their poverty may come from the curse of the world, or their poverty may be the experience of the sins of others. But very often their poverty is also a reality of their own sin. And we need to be able to speak biblically and speak gospel-centered and gospel-saturated advice and wisdom to all three of these areas. So the first step is recognizing that this is how sin impoverishes us. And what we need to do is commit to imitating Christ in meeting poverty wherever we encounter it and equipping ourselves and preparing ourselves to be able to address it biblically, materially, and spiritually. And so that's what the February 4th seminar will be all about. Again, just pencil that in. It's so that you can feel equipped, even in your own poverty, even as I have had to be equipped, poorly as I am, in my own poverty, to meet the poverty of others as they come to us as Christians. And so it is an invitation. It's an invitation. I've set that date, February 4th, to provide a seminar, How We Can Bring the Wealth of the Gospel to Our Most Basic Sin-Induced Poverties. And that sounds fancy, but it's actually very simple. When you sit down with a friend to have a coffee, talk about their anxiety, talk about their struggling marriage, talk about their lack of joy, talk about their loneliness, their despair and illness, the struggle they have finding a job, you are talking to them about a poverty of experience that ultimately has its roots in sin. Somewhere. As I said, maybe it's the curse of the world, maybe it's the sin of others, maybe it's their own sin. But as Christians, we need to be prepared to give an account for the hope that's in us. We have to give them biblical answers. Okay, Oprah's not going to help them. Ellen's not going to help them. Dr. Phil's not going to help them. Your therapist is not going to help them. Your life experience and your advice probably isn't going to help them. 
because you probably didn't deal with your poverty in the right way the first few times. As we mature, as we grow in Christ, then maybe your life experience will work. But trust me, you know, a person does not need to hear marriage advice from a person who, you know, is not doing so great in their own marriage, you know, or is really struggling to understand how the gospel applies to their marriage. What we need to do is not give people advice from ourselves or from our therapists or from popular culture or from what we read on Facebook. We need to be equipped to give them the gospel and tell them how Jesus has come to meet their poverty. And the gospel takes on a hundred different forms, as we've just heard in these two testimonies. The gospel meets us exactly where we are at to encounter our poverty. And that's what we need to be equipped to do. It does take wisdom, and it takes preparation, and probably most of us don't feel qualified to offer biblical counsel in those situations, unfortunately. Sometimes we don't even think the biblical counsel is what we need. And so we give them advice based on the wrong things. But here's the reality. As Christians, we need to be Bible-saturated and gospel-aware people that know how to apply the good news of God's instruction and the person of Jesus to each other's lives. As we equip ourselves to meet the poverty of others in all its forms, with the riches of the gospel in all its forms, then we are engaging in the same work of Jesus as image-bearers of his spirit and image. And so... That's my encouragement to you, is that as we meditate on Jesus meeting us in our poverty this Advent, as he enters into our life to meet us in our poverty and bring his riches to us, we as his image bearers must approach others. We must not avoid but step into the poverty of others in all of its forms. And as we step into that poverty, as disciples of Christ, we need to be well equipped to bring the same gospel, the same wisdom, the same peace, the same compassion, the same love, that Jesus brings to us, we can bring into the poverty that we encounter in everyone that we meet. And so if you don't feel equipped to do that, if you're thinking that you're just getting the tip of the iceberg this morning, you are. (laughs) But February 4th, we're going to introduce you to how to disciple, because that's all this really is. This is just discipleship. This is discipling people through the poverty of their life into spiritual riches. And you can learn how to do that. There is a special and unique experience that God has given you to be able to encounter stories like you heard this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus has entered into our poverty. We recognize the hundreds of poverties we experience. We acknowledge that we only find peace and riches in you, not that we will necessarily be removed from the circumstances of our poverty, but that you will meet us in that poverty and bring us peace and riches like we never imagined. And so, Father, help us to be equipped. Help us to be a people that step into the poverty of others and prepare ourselves to meet them with the riches of the gospel as Bible-saturated, gospel-centered disciples. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.